Hi. So we're going to start a, a new series starting this week through the book of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible. So let's just uh, jump right in. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. These are the first words from Scripture in the beginning. And that's where the word Genesis comes from, the word origin or beginning. So I want to start out by asking the question, why is it important to study the book of Genesis? Scholars say, and Christian theologians have said, this is foundational, like it all starts from here. In fact, people have said, the rest of the Bible might be commentary to this first verse in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Why is it important to look into our beginning, into our origin? Well, I think it's because we find ourselves here, uh, where we are in the present, and maybe we're not always aware of this, but if we think about it, we actually don't know what to do with the present unless we know the full story, where it all began, so that we know where we are in the story, like trying to make sense of a book in the middle. So a little jarring transition here, but what's your favorite scene in Harry Potter? Why don't you take, oh, I don't know, like 30 seconds to come up with it and share it with the, with the neighbor next to you. Well, for me, it's this scene. Sorry about that. I demand that you leave at once. You are breaking and entering. Dry up, Dursley, you great prune. Boy, I haven't seen you since you was a baby, Harry, but you were a bit more along than I would have expected, particularly round the middle. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm, I'm not Harry. I, I am. Well, of course you are. Got something for you. Afraid I may have sat on it at some point, but I imagine it'll taste fine just the same. Painted <sighs> myself, words and all. Thank you. It's not every day your young man turns eleven, now, is it? Hey. Excuse me. Who are you? Rubius Hagrid, keeper of keys and grounds at Hogwarts. Of course, you'll know all about Hogwarts. Sorry, no. No? Blimey, Harry, didn't you ever wonder where your mum and dad learned it all? Learned what? You're a wizard, Harry. I'm a what? A wizard, and a thumping good one, I'd wager, once you trade up a little. No, 
You've made a mistake. I mean, I can't be a, a, a wizard. I mean, I'm just Harry. Just Harry. Well, just Harry. Did you ever make anything happen? Anything you couldn't explain when you were angry or, or scared? So here's Harry, you know, living the life of an unloved orphan, you know, barely tolerated by a pretty mean-spirited uh, uncle and aunt and uh, and a bullying older cousin, except he has these strange stirrings and inklings. And then here comes Hagrid, this giant, come to tell him his origin story. He says he's part of another world, uh, that a dark wizard tried to kill him when he was a baby for some reason, and his parents gave their lives to save him. And he's invited to enter into his destiny. This is your past, and, and that's why you're here, and now here's his future. What if Harry said to Hagrid, you know, Hagrid, um, it's okay. You know, I'm just going to I'm just gonna go to, like, UIUX boot camp and, and become a coder. Uh, I'll be fine. Like, that would be absurd. So what does Harry get uh, from this very powerful moment uh, of encountering his origin story? I think he understands his present. He, he gets direction about his destiny. He understands his own life, like that strange scar and all the odd things that have happened around him time to time. And he knows what his future is going to be about. In other words, he gets meaning, meaning. So here you are, you know, you have all these inklings, these stirring emotions. You're aware that you have some powers and potential. Well, what to do with it all? Uh, and there's the wild, scary, exciting world of your future. So what will you do? How will you expend your life? Mostly the answer is exult in your freedom, right? I mean, that's the answer that our generation gives us, like exult in your freedom. Freedom to do what? Well, freedom to do whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it, however it suits you in the moment. And what that turns out to be, as exciting as that sounds, is pretty soon your strengths are dissipated. You end up sort of random and directionless, and you may get pretty wounded in the process, and your life will take on the features of a pre-creational chaos. So studying Genesis is important. It asks the questions that are the foundational questions. Who are we? What is the nature of man? What is our purpose? What went wrong? These are some of the most critical questions to answer. It's a starting point from which we build everything else, like you know, let's say you've got a lot to say and you put your hands on the keyboard and you're writing away and what you might have in your mind is, you know, what you might have in your mind are eloquent ideas. But if your hands are on the wrong home keys, it's going to come out gibberish. And the first words, the first words from scripture says, in the beginning, God. It starts with God. Is there God or not? Like what can be a more important, more basic question than that? So let's, uh, let's read the rest of the chapter. So we're going to cover about a third of the chapter today. Uh, and, and reading it together, like I've color-coded the text to point out some of the recurring wording. And um, after we read it, you'll see why. So I'll read it, but pay attention to, to the colors. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said... Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. 
And God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. This word separate will uh, come up again and again, and I want to draw your attention to it. So part of what God does is he speaks creation into existence um, with, with declaration. But, but part of his creational activity is to separate. So isn't that interesting? Separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its own kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, there was morning, the third day. Okay, so let's, uh, let's pause there. What are you noticing about, about the text? I think what you notice is there are recurring patterns. And God said, and God said, um, there is the, uh, the content of what God speaks forth, and then the statement, it was so. And then there is an evaluative statement, God saw that it was good. And then the time marker, there was evening and there was morning the third day. I think the, the, the primary initial question when you're trying to understand what you're reading is, what genre is this? So given what we read, what genre uh, is Genesis chapter 1? Right. Poetry. Um, in other words, Genesis is not offered as a scientific report. As someone said that the new atheists who love pointing out how unscientific Genesis chapter 1 is, someone said they don't even know how to read. I think the interest of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is, con is to convey uh, theological truths about who and why rather than how, which is a concern of scientific reportage. In other words, it's not about method, it's about meaning. So let's look at some of these recurring expressions. So God said, let there be light. It was so. God said, let there be. In other words, God's creational activity. The first few verses of Genesis ties the fact of God to the fact of creation. Um, I think when we think about, like, is there God, that, that almost seems like a philosophical question immediately. And of course it is. But the question, is there a creator? Like, I think we can get some handles on that. And um, I think it, it leads to the question, like, what sort of, what sort of place is, is the universe? Um, this reality made of time, space, and matter. For a long time, the dogma in science was that this reality, time, space, and matter, always was. It always was there existed forever. And it's interesting, and I said that's dogma, because I think it is. It's not a scientific statement. I think scientific statements are a lot more modest and measured and provable or disprovable. That statement is not. I think, um, I think we get intimidated uh, or misled by scientists who speak outside of their field of expertise. And man, like all praise to science. I mean, the, the, the advancements of science and engineering and um, in medicine, like yay science. 
But I think because of the tremendous successes of science, the scientists take on this aura of like the modern day high priests of knowledge. And then I think they speak with that aura of authority into matters which are inherently not scientific. And it's not clear to me that the scientists who speak thus even understand that that's what they're doing. And so they say things that are just beyond science, such as the universe existed forever. Um, well, the Big Bang cosmology, um, which came along about 50 years ago, I think, uh, and, and has now been firmly established as, uh, you know, nearly incontrovertible, um, it says that the universe began to exist. Like there was, you know, the expanding universe, and I'm sure all of you know about that. It goes back to what they call the singularity. And, and that's the point at which science starts. Like that's observable, uh, physical. But it began to exist. It began to exist. And I think, um, uh, let me have two scientists, non-Christian agnostic uh, scientists, state the situation. Scientists can no longer hide behind a past eternal universe. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. And that's uh, from Alexander Vilenkin of Tufts University. I like this set of quotes from Robert Jastrow, who taught at Yale and Dartmouth. At this moment, it seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. For the scientist who has lived by his faith and the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Astronomers now find that they have proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation. And they have found that all this happened as a product of forces they cannot hope to discover. That there are what I or anyone would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. So, if the universe began to exist, and whatever began to exist has a cause. Like, I mean, you can be stubborn and say, like, no, it has no cause. I mean, I suppose you can say that. It wouldn't make you reasonable, though. Um, so if it began to exist, then what caused it? And what caused it cannot be material. We're talking about matter. What caused it must be immaterial. And it must be infinitely powerful. In other words, it must be personal. Personal. I'm going to do a trick I'm going to make a physical object in the universe move just by intending it to. Telekinesis. It's about 15 pounds, and I can get it to move. Ready? Yeah, I think it's about 15 pounds. I don't know. My arm. Um, I made that move. In other words, I am prior. I, the person, is prior more foundational to the physical. Now, if you're a committed um, materialist, in other words, material phenomenon is all there is, then I didn't raise the arm, the arm just moved. And I think that's a real stretch. Um, so personhood is prior to the physical. So God, the creator, um, who is personal, immaterial, infinitely powerful, uh, it speaks creation into existence, what implication does this have for you? 
for me, I found that for me, I found that immensely comforting and exciting. I was 15, um, living in Los Angeles, unhappy home, alcoholic, violent father, um, unmotivated, nihilistic to the core, um, not very wealthy. I don't have a whole lot going for me. And then to, to hear this, um, like the gospel came to me like a visit from Hagrid, you know, like, hey, you belong to God. There's a creator of the universe, and he created all of this, including you. I mean, that was unbelievably welcome news to me. Directionless and aimless and unmotivated. Like, I understood the implications right away. Like, if I have a creator, all right, he wins. He owns me. I remember thinking, what? wait, every cell in my body, every minute of my life, he claims it. And now I know what to do with my life. And I was like, at your service. So your origin, to really embrace this, to be confident about this, it infuses your present with meaning and it gives you a future, a clear direction. Like I want my life to be about God and His preferences and what He wants. Jesus said, pray like this. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, how is His will going to be done on earth? Well, here I am. Yeah, as for me, I am going to be about doing God's will on earth. And this galvanizes you, channels your talents and energies. You know, they say a banked river is powerful. It directs and focuses the flow. So to know your origin, it infuses your future with traction, with meaning, and it gives you a future to aim for. So you might not be sure about any of this. Or maybe you grew up in the church and you kind of know you're supposed to accept this, but you know, you're kind of maybe half embarrassed by it. You might not be aware that there is a wealth of resources out there um, in the past 20 years, scientific discoveries. I think, I think the biologists tend to be like really kind of arrogant and, and uh, they go out of their way to like poke fun at, uh, you know, religion and people believe in God and the creator. Um, but Really, the, the, what I consider the higher levels, you know, people who think in math, uh, physicists and cosmologists, uh, they're actually a lot more humble. Uh, they're, they're almost um, kind of stumped by the mystery of it. And um, if you want to look into some of this, I, I have a resource that I can recommend to you. It's called reasonablefaith.org. And uh, there's a, a lot of really accessible material uh, on this point, on the beginning of the universe and what its implications are. Um, uh, moving on, um, one of the recurring phrases that uh, we saw was um, the text in green, and God called, God called, God called. Um, isn't, that, isn't that interesting that God would create and then he would like call it something? I don't know if you have that experience of, um, I do. I love trees and um, my love for trees came l later on in life, so I'm a little frustrated because I don't know the names of the trees. I didn't, I didn't learn the names of the trees. I just went hiking and um, like, God, what kind of tree is that? And occasionally I'll learn a name. You know, oh, that's a poplar. That's an aspen. And when I learned the name, there's something about that experience uh, that's kind of neat. It like kind of attaches you um, to the thing that you now have the name for. Um, 
God named all of creation. In the New Testament, there's this verse in Romans 4.17, that God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. If there's one thing that Genesis 1 teaches us, it's this, that God speaks realities. So when God calls you something, it just is. Occasionally, we, we have experiences of this. Back in 1987, when I was standing at the altar next to my wife, and the preacher pronounced us. You know, like in all the movies, that's where, that's where the archers have to, like, kill the bishop before he pronounces these words, right? I pronounce you husband and wife. And in some ways, those words create the reality. Or when Abraham Lincoln proclaimed all slaves to be free, proclamation of emancipation. Throughout the land, Mr. Lincoln says we're free. Those words created new realities. Well, how much more when God calls you sons, daughters, and you might feel like, no, you know, I'm, I'm this worthless fellow, you know? Like our, our world, I think, just sort of crushes our self-esteem so that we can try to regain it through performing and jumping through hoops. Don't let the world call you anything other than what God calls you. And if you're a believer today, you know what God calls you? Mine, your precious sons, daughters. And because he says so, it creates realities. And then there's another recurring phrase that I pointed out earlier, God separated, God separated. Now I want to introduce you to another word, swarm, swarm. I don't know if you like swarming things, um, but God loves abundance. Um, there, there are a number of these kinds of facts that people love. I think one of my favorites is that the biomass of the earthworm far outweighs the biomass of all human beings on earth. So if the earthworms got organized, like they would defeat us in terms of sheer mass. Uh, or, or how about this one? There, there are trees in the Amazon which contain species of beetles, like the number of species of beetles into the 700s, not 700 beetles, 700 species of beetles. I think it's one of the biggest lies foisted upon man that God is anti-life that God is anti-flourishing, abundance. No, God wants more and more. God, like God is a God of blessing, of bounty. Here's what C.S. Lewis says on this very point. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. This boundary creating, separating, making space, and then filling the creation, which Genesis chapter 1 describes, these two aspects of creation are related. In other words, it seems to be the underlying truth being asserted here is that boundaries create or lead to abundance. Take a chess game, for example. I think it was only in recent decades that the computers caught up to the complexity of chess, right? And yet it's, it's, it's a pretty simple little board with 
a lot of bounded moves. Like, you know, this thing can only go this way, and I'm actually not a chess player, but I thought it was always absurd that the castle can move. I think that's really strange. Although the power of the queen versus a king, that's true to life. Now you get three-year-olds playing chess or four-year-olds, and they've seen it so that they kind of know, okay, the whites go on this side, the blacks go on this side, and they'll sit there and they'll, okay, let's play chess. And then pretty soon it's like Godzilla versus Kong. It's like they don't know what to do, so they just they just go, you know, and the whole thing's over in, in a violent clash. And the complexity and the richness doesn't emerge. It only emerges when you accept the boundaries. Well, you think about art, music, sports. It's those tight rules and boundaries that gives, gives rise to a thrilling level of beauty and skill that emerges when you accept those boundaries. Is that true of other areas of life? What about relationally? Like what if we said, ah, relational boundaries, um, they're kind of silly. And what if your parents said one day, hey, just call me by my first name. Uh, let's just be equals. Uh, I won't demand respect from you and you don't, and I won't be responsible for you. It's just flat, just flat. I, I don't know, does that sound thrilling? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> and I think it'd be awful. So what about the most bound relationship where two people bind themselves with an oath unto death? Right, marriage. Probably one of the richest of human relationships. You know, I officiate a lot of weddings and couples come together and a lot of modern couples, you know, they write their own vows and I let them, you know, and they say, oh, Chad, I love you so much and whatever. And then when they're done, I say, okay, now I will pose to you the, the vows in the traditional form of a question. Do you, groom, promise to the bride, richer or poorer, in health or in disease? Disease. Cancer, paralysis, I don't say it like that, but do you promise to be faithful through all of that till death do you part? I do, they say, without a pause. And nobody in the audience shrieks in horror. They all sort of get a lump in their throat. What does that tell you? It tells you that richness, relationships, really worth having are all defined by boundaries. So when God creates boundaries, he's after richness and the flourishing of life, not to restrict. Life becomes so much more interesting and complex once boundaries are accepted. Strength, form, beauty flow from these boundaries. The message of the world is boundaries are life-reducing and all the old boundaries were put up by power-mongering institutions of authority figures in pursuit of their own agendas. And I think, you know, that's true as far as it goes. It's not completely true. And it's definitely not true of human relational realities nor our relationship with God. And I think this is one of the biggest lies foisted upon our generation that a life that rejects all boundaries will become more free and therefore more powerful. No, uh, it becomes more formless, more void, more empty. It'll fall apart into randomness. So what are God's boundaries for man? I think we're going to explore this uh, in, in more detail next week, but that's a question we're going to get to. Um, God's a speaking God and he, he speaks boundaries 
uh, to Adam and Eve, and uh, we're going to see what happens in, next, in the next chapter. But when we accept God's boundaries, then we flourish. And what's his wish? What's his wish? Accept my boundaries so he can flourish. Like, what is he, what is he going to do with that? I think he wants to share with us his dominion and his ongoing mission in creation. So in verses 26 through 28, we get these words. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. In other words, whatever we, we get from this verse, this much is clear. We are to be like God. We have been made to imitate him. And it, it, it says, and, and it goes on, and let them have dominion over creation. In other words, to exercise God's rule over creation. And then verse 28, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. In other words, God's creational activity is shared with man. We have a mission in the world. He sends us out sort of into this chaos to do what he does, to breathe life and order and beauty and richness into whatever arena we enter into, commissioned by God to be like Him in His creational activity. Like, what are you going to do with your life? What are you going to do with your life? Man, if there's a God who created you, you want to start there, right? You want to start there. And I get so surprised how many people leave that question fuzzy, as if it's a question that is... Um, not practical, like it's academic, it's luxury, it's philosophical, or it's an utterly absurd question. I think it's more absurd to find yourself here and never settle the question of origin. Just like, here I am, I guess. Like, what a thoughtless way to be. I think our existence cries out for a quest. Like, why am I here? Like, what's the story? And once you find the story, to place yourself at the right place in that story is the quest that we should all be engaged in, through which we're going to find a clear sense of purpose, know who we are, and know what to do with our lives. All right, so that's all I have. Um, before we close, um, I'd like to ask you to just take a minute, uh, kind of consolidate what you heard. Uh, Genesis chapter 1. Um, like if God's a speaking God, right? Like what, what is he saying to you? Uh, what jumped out at you? Um, and uh, why don't you take a minute just kind of jotting down some thoughts and then we'll close.